Humanity's scientific and technological progress has been inexorable. But have we progressed enough that we should start thinking about becoming a multi-planet species? In order to live on another planet, like, say, Mars, we'll need to do some work on it to make it habitable for humans. And that's a process called terraforming. That is a huge job, one that isn't really going to be possible anytime soon. Mars is far away and very different from the Earth. But there may be something easier to start with, though. A place that's much closer, and, you may be surprised to hear, has more in common with the Earth. I'm talking about the Moon. Terraforming the Moon, on this episode of Space Junk Podcast. Welcome to Space Junk Podcast with Tony Darnell and Dustin Gibson. Hello, space fans, and welcome back. A little bit later in the episode, in our gear segment, Dustin and I are going to talk about building a basic astrophotography rig. But let's first look at the possibility of building human communities elsewhere in our solar system. And I want to talk specifically about the moon. Because when people think about terraforming a planet, we don't usually think about the moon. We think about starting with someplace like Mars. But I want to propose a better idea. Let's terraform the moon instead. So before we get going, we should probably talk about what terraforming is. So Wikipedia says that terraforming is the process of deliberately modifying the atmosphere, temperature, surface surface topography, uh, and the ecology of a planet, moon, or other body, and to make it similar to the environment of the Earth and make it habitable by Earth-like life. Okay, that's what Wikipedia says. Basically, we're trying to take another planet and turn it in to something very, very similar to Earth so we can live in it. Now, thinking about it that way, we probably are never going to be able to accomplish terraforming, whether we're talking about the moon or the Mars, because building a comparable Earth isn't possible at either of those places. I mean, both the moon and Mars are too small to have the same gravity as the Earth, for example, so we can't even get out of the starting gate when it comes to that. The gravity is just too different. But what if we loosen this definition up a bit? We can say that terraforming is making parts of a planet or a moon habitable to human beings, or to make another world mostly Earth-like. Well, if we talk about it that way, then we can probably do some of that to one extent or another. But why should we terraform at all? Why do we even need to be talking about this? Well, it's no surprise to anybody listening here on this podcast that we have problems here on Earth, most notably those related to things like climate change. And we should probably worry about keeping our habitable planet, Earth, habitable, instead of worrying about making other planets more habitable, right? So uh, still... I have to say, I agree with Elon Musk on this one thing. Elon Musk, the CEO of SpaceX and other companies, he says that we should devote 99% of our resources to protecting and fixing the problems that we have here on Earth, especially with relation to climate change. So we should spend most of our resources in fixing problems here. But why not use 1% to explore the solar system and try living elsewhere? And I agree with him 100% on this. We should give some small part of our resources into the problem, into looking into the problem of exploring the solar system and maybe living on another planet. So that's one reason why we should terraform. We do have problems here on this planet we should maybe uh, look at. I don't know. Some people are calling it a planet B. I think that's stretching it a bit, but it's worth looking into. Another good reason to terraform is that Earth's resources, regardless of the state of the Earth, are finite. No matter how thoroughly we grow technologically, there's only a finite amount of continental land area to inhabit on our planet. So there's only so much land to go around. And while we could develop floating cities on and under the oceans at some point, there are still finite resources. And if we continue to grow, we'll need to leave our home planet at some point. And another thing to consider is that while we are searching for planets around other stars, we call these exoplanets, uh, we have yet to find one that is suitable for humans to live on, that we haven't yet found an Earth-like 
planet out there in our exoplanet search. That's not to say we won't find one, but so far we haven't seen one. And even if we do find one, it may or probably will be too far away for us to get to any anytime soon. So this leaves us with creating a habitable world um, from a place that isn't so far away, but it also isn't very hospitable. And that leaves us with terraforming. So what's wrong with terraforming Mars? I mean, that's one of the first things we think about when we talk about this subject. Let's go to Mars. Let's terraform it. Make it like Earth. That'd be great. I mean, the the expanse is built on a large part of this, this plot point. So what's wrong with that? Well, there are several pros and cons. Let's go through some of the pros of terraforming Mars. Well, it already has a large quantity of water on it. So if we go there, we can use that water that's already there. And Mars is also larger and it's more massive than our moon. So that means the gravity is going to be a little bit more comfortable to us. And uh, it has an atmosphere. Mars has an atmosphere. It's made of CO2, carbon dioxide, but still it has an atmosphere. So that's better than, I suppose, nothing at all. Now, the cons of Mars is that it's very far away. Uh, it can take anywhere from uh, several months to a year to get just to get to Mars, depending on when you launch and where the planets are in their orbit. It also gets less sunlight than Earth does. So the sunshine that falls on the surface of Mars is much less than that here on Earth. That affects things like doing agriculture and producing power. Um, the atmosphere also, while it is existing, it has very high winds on it. And so it creates a lot of sandstorms. There's also a lot of rough terrain. And finally, and this to me is one of the biggest sticklers about going to Mars, is that it has no magnetic field. The Earth has a very strong magnetic field, which I don't think many people appreciate, but it appreciate enough at least because it protects us from a lot of harmful radiation from the sun. Life would not be possible on Earth if we did not have a magnetic field. Well, Mars does not have one. So it's very dangerous to stand on the surface of, of Mars and try and stay alive. You get you you can easily get a lethal dose of radiation in much much less time than a human lives. So if you tried to live on the surface, you would almost certainly die of radiation exposure. So you'd have to go underground and live that way to mitigate the fact that there's no magnetic field. So there's there's some of the cons of going to Mars. Now, none of these are insurmountable. None of these problems. We could probably solve a lot of them, but it may not be possible to do that anytime soon. Another big problem with Mars is this, is the soil or the dirt which calling it soil is a little bit premature. Uh, there's a difference between soil and dirt. Uh, soil is just the regolith, the stuff that covers the, the, the crust of the, of the planet. And in Mars' case, it's poisonous. If we tried to turn the Martian dirt into soil and grow things there, what came out of it would have perchlorates and a lot of other oxi highly oxidized metals that would be poisonous to the human to human beings to eat. So we'd have to do something to the soil so that we could grow things in it. That's a big minus also. And because Mars is so remote, getting stuff there and back is a huge deal, very expensive. We have to haul a lot of things from Earth to go to Mars. That'll cost a lot of money. And communication back and forth, just talking to each other from Mars to here would be a pain because the communication back and forth would range anywhere from seven minutes to 22 minutes, depending on where the planets are in their orbits. So you'd have to send a signal, wait anywhere from seven to 22 minutes to get an answer back. That's a hard conversation to have. Now, while I'm trying to make the case for terraforming the moon, there are problems with both the moon and the Mar and Mars. Um, for example, both places have large temperature swings, hundreds of degrees Celsius between certain parts from the daytime side to the nighttime side, for example, things like that. So uh, that's one problem. Uh, and the surface gravity on both places is very, very low, whether you're on the moon or Mars. So that's another problem. Um, also, living on the moon would mean that your days and nights are very weird. One day on the moon is two weeks long. One night on the moon is two weeks long. So that's another very strange thing to have to deal with. The Martian day is, by contrast, similar to the Earth. It's only seven minutes longer than, a, than an Earth day. So that's not big. That's not much of a problem. But the moon would have a two-week day and night. And both places 
also have dead cores, which means no magnetic field. And I talked to you before about the fact that Mars has no magnetic field. It has no dynamo in the center of its core to generate a magnetic field. Uh, the moon doesn't have that either. But there is a mitigating situation for the moon, which I'll talk about in just a minute. Okay, so I've outlined that maybe starting with terraforming Mars might be more problematic than starting with the moon. What are some advantages that the moon has over Mars? Well, <laughs> the big one the big one is that its location is great. It's really, really close to the Earth. We can communicate to it in just a matter of seconds. To send a, a radio signal to the moon takes a little over a second to do, so communications are real time. Um, uh, you can get there. In just three days, the Apollo astronauts took three days to get there. It could probably cut that to two with better technology. So getting there is very, very quick and not a big problem, which means that getting stuff to the moon is a whole is a whole lot easier. And one side of the moon, now this is both a plus and a minus, but one side of the moon always faces the Earth. As the moon goes around the Earth, it revolves or it rotates on its axis at the same rate that it revolves around the Earth. That means that one side of the moon, always faces Earth. We are very familiar with that. When we look up at a full moon, it always looks the same because it's rotating at the same rate as it's revolving. So that is plus or that's a plus or a minus, depending on what you're trying to do on the moon. But for those who live on the near side, the side that always faces Earth, there will always be an Earth in the sky when you're on the moon. Now that could have huge psychological effects, positive ones, to know that the moon or that to know that the Earth, our home, is right there. So let's talk about that magnetic field problem I, I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier. I remember I said that neither the moon nor Mars has a magnetic field. And a magnetic field is vital, or for Earth life at least, to, uh, to have a chance at surviving uh, because of the radiation. Well, it, studies have been done that show that even though the moon has no magnetic field, in 2007, it was found that the Earth's magnetic field does a really good job of shielding the moon from the solar wind and significantly reduces the effects of radiation on the lunar surface. It's not ideal, but because the Earth's magnetic field is close by, it does offer some protection from solar radiation if you're on the lunar surface. That's really a good thing. Now, what's more is that the moon picks up a positive charge during the day, and that slows down and it reduces harmful effects of protons and other positively charged particles or ions that, that come at us from the sun. So in terms of radiation safety, the moon wins hands down over Mars, a very good place to be, comparatively speaking, when, when you're talking about radiation protection. So, because it's so close, accessibility is, is way superior to getting uh, to Mars. It's easier to take off and land from the moon, uh, exchanging signals, also getting stuff back and forth. And another really cool thing is that the Earth's infrastructure could be shared with the moon. NASA right now has contracted with Nokia to build cell phone service on the moon, which would be great. We could use your cell phones on the moon. Also, internet could be possible on the moon and share. I mean, anybody who's used Starlink can tell you that the, the latency problems are being solved in the internet. So it's possible we could even share internet between the moon and uh, earth. So that's also a really cool thing. So we could, we could share these resources and this infrastructure if we started on the moon. Mars, by comparison, is too far away. It almost certainly would need its own standalone infrastructure. So that's a big negative. Another thing that really helps the moon out is that solar power is much more available on the moon than on Mars. There's no atmosphere on the moon, there's no cloud cover, and there's no absorption of radiation. So any solar panels that you install on the moon would work the same as if they were in spacecraft in orbit above the Earth with no loss of efficiency. So by comparison, Mars has 43% of the available radiation to it that the moon has, less than half. So that is a big cut when it comes to power uh, for going things on the, for doing things on Mars. Okay, but hands down, the most important thing that the moon brings to the table when it comes to being a good place to start terraforming is the lunar regolith. 
Now, for those of you who don't know, the Earth and the Moon formed from a from the same ancient collision way back in the beginning of the solar system. A large Mars-sized object collided with us, and that collision broke off a huge piece of the Earth that later became coalesced and became the Moon that we see today. And so, we know this is true because samples that we've taken from both the Moon and the Earth show that it's made of the same stuff. That's where this theory came from. So the lunar regolith, the stuff that's on the top of the moon, is identical to the Earth's crust. It's not similar. It's not Earth-like. It is identical, which means that the moon is the Earth. And what does that tell you about the soil? Well, that we that all of the stuff that we were facing with the Martian soil, the fact that it's poisonous, is non-existent on the moon. Experiments have been done that have shown that we can grow things on the moon. Um, In 2008, researchers went out to test the suitability of the lunar soil by growing uh, terrestrial plants. Uh, I think they used marigolds to do this. They they reconstructed lunar regolith from... uh, uh, compounds here on earth and tried to grow things in it and they were successful in doing it in the difference between dirt and soil however is that you need to add biomatter some sort of biological material to make to turn that dirt into something that can grow and when you do that with lunar regolith things grow in it so much more recently in 2019 china launched a or landed a, a rover on the moon called the chang'e 4 uh, from the chang'e 4 spacecraft and they performed an experiment that involved a small 2.6 kilogram biosphere from the stuff on the moon and they inside this biosphere they had seeds eggs and a dormant single-celled organism that was on board and during the lunar day which remember last 14 earth days they were able to grow a cotton plant from seed. And this is the first time ever that a seed has sprouted on the moon. Two leaves came out of it, and it is suspected that the plant only died because lunar night fell two weeks later, uh, and which dropped the temperature down to one minus 190 degrees Celsius. So things can be grown on the moon. The lunar soil can, can hold and grow uh, plants. So basically, all we have to do is put up a a self-enclosed structure, fill it with air, and enrich the soil or enrich the lunar regolith with bacteria, and we can start growing things. And that's it. That's all we've got to do. So it's much simpler. It's a much easier problem to solve. And the experience that we gain by terraforming the moon will help us tremendously in deciding whether or not, first of all, we can do Mars or maybe even more distant solar system objects like Titan, one of the moons of Saturn, or or maybe even Venus, who knows. But but we need this experience here by starting on the moon. So basically the blueprint, the blueprint is really simple. Build an airtight dome, fill it with breathable air, get water from a lunar crater. That's another thing they've discovered on the moon, that there is water available on the surface of the moon in the shadow of craters, especially in the south pole of the moon. Uh, So get that water, bring some bacteria with us from Earth to make soil, and start growing things. So this will allow us to terraform parts of the moon, make it more habitable for human beings, and sustainable uh, in a way that is probably not possible or even feasible anytime soon on Mars. Okay, so that's my pitch. I think we should be going to the moon first instead of Mars. Let's start terraforming it. Let's start living there. Let's start seeing what's possible on other bodies of the solar system. After all, the moon is the Earth, which means that if we go there, we're basically still on Earth. We just don't have an atmosphere, but we still have a lot of the other things that that the, that the Earth brings with it to make it habitable uh, and to make it possible for us to make it habitable there. So it, we, I think we would be stupid not to try this first before trying something bigger, like even sending a, a sustainable colony to Mars. I think we should start here first. Let me know what you think. Send me an email. <laughs> Spacejunkpodcast at deepastronomy.com. I want to hear what you think. Do you think 
we should go to the moon first? Or do you think maybe we don't even have any business terraforming at all? Let me know. You're listening to Space Junk Podcast. Hi again, Dustin. It's good to have you back. Uh, we're kind of trying our little new format here. And the first topic we're going to talk about here is building a basic astrophotography rig. Uh, this is for beginners. It's for people who are just thinking about getting started in uh, the hobby and especially in imaging. So there's a lot to choose from. And, you know, Dustin is probably the best qualified person I know to talk about this topic. So Dustin, for somebody who's just getting started, wanting to navigate this whole uh, arena of astro imaging, where the hell do you start? And what, what, you know, what's a basic astronomy rig for imaging look like? Uh, you mean there's a lot of uh, a lot of questions around this, Tony? Oh, I, one or two. I, I think I don't know. Yeah. I've heard there, there there are man. There there are a million variables, <laughs> and you know, um, an opinion for everybody that's been been involved in any way. Uh, but I can give you mine, um, and and tell you what what I see, you know, on a daily basis with people. Um, usually, what people do is the opposite of what they do in other hobbies is they they start too big or they start too complex you know whether it be with the equipment or with the um generally where they do this is they tackle programs like pix insight because that's what everybody says out of the gate um you that's know, they the processing into, software you're talking yeah about, exactly PixInsight, exactly right. which is part of the whole you you're not you can go get images but ultimately you're gonna have to process them if you want to be able to show them off or just have something you're proud of you know, so what I would say is start simple. Like that is the best advice I can give is start really, really simple when it comes to astrophotography and usually try to use the things you already have. So if you already have a DSLR, you already have a camera that you can use for this, then start there and buy the other components and learn those components. And so generally the first thing we tell people is like get a rock solid mount, get a mount that is going to be stable, consistent and not provide you know, a ton of frustration along the way, because there is a frustration curve in this hobby. And so for beginning, you know, it's, it's the same with visual, the visual side of the hobby, but with astrophotography specifically, because everything becomes more critical when you're doing long exposures, you really have to kind of buy in above that frustration curve, but not so far that you get into the complexities where it becomes, you know, an impossible learning curve right out of the gate, you know? And so um, ultimately what ends up, you know, working best for people is generally lightweight mounts that they can carry around and and have that are portable that have go-to, they have tracking. So these are motorized mounts and, um, you know, they can start really, really simply with um, something like the Celestron AVX or even even without go-to, something like the uh, the Skywatcher Star Adventurer. I mean, that's a really, really popular place for people to start. And I know like Ian, Ian Lauer does the, um, uh, the Milky Way uh, training events. And that's what he starts people on. And there's no go-to. You literally just point your camera at what you want to see. But because it's tracking equatorially you can do long exposures and not get the star trails but um you know it's a, it's it's a deep hole to go down so i'm glad we have a little time here to talk about it but i guess to end my first statement here with it is start simply wherever you can right and the money that you spend on amount you won't regret that's one of those things where it's money well spent regardless of how much it is and the star adventure is probably the uh the best value for your money. If you're just getting started, you'll find yourself using it for lots of other things uh, as well. So a good solid yeah. mount is definitely a, a you know, money well spent, regardless of how you're going to use your telescope. Uh, what else would be a part of a, a good rig? Well, and, and what you just said was a, a really good point because it's not something that you have to go out and replace anytime soon. It's, most of the things in astrophotography, you can have your whole life and still use it. You know, telescopes are good for a very, very long time. There are still a ton of telescopes around the world being used that are, you know, decades old um, and are still very high quality that work really well. Um, you know, so when you buy a, you know, a, an optical element, you, you buy an OTA, um, you know, optical tube assembly or 
um, you know, filters or whatever it is, even the cameras, these things aren't something that you're going to have to go out and replace next year. This is going to last you a very long time. So you can feel good about those purchases that like, Hey, look, it, if I want to go in, it's better to get something that's going to be high quality. It's going to work well. It's going to keep me from getting frustrated in the hobby and, you know, actually enjoy the experience because again, I mean, this is, this is for fun. It's a hobby. It is not something that you have to be out there doing. And so you're already fighting a lot of other challenges. You know, the universe is a shy creature. It doesn't want its picture taken. And you're out there <laughs> and it's going to throw weather at you and cold and um, everything else, wind and all these other problems. Little kids hanging off your telescope. <laughs> you know, it's going to throw everything it can at you. Bad atmospheric conditions. So you really have to make sure that your equipment is in that fight with you and not against you. Yeah, optical suit, optical tube assemblies don't wear out. Uh, they can get damaged. Uh, they can get scratched or dropped or cracked, and that's always catastrophically tragic. Yeah. But the uh, uh, they don't wear out, and these are things you could you know the more you spend the the better the better you the better you'll feel about it because they don't wear out, uh, and you can pass mm -hmm. them down to your children, and they just last forever. I've got telescopes yeah. that I bought in the nineteen eighties that I still have here, uh, some of which I've given to my sons. So. Yeah, so because of that, people grow more fond of them. It's yeah. not something that you're like, oh, that thing's a piece of junk. Like over time, you start to really love it that much more because it's like, wow, I've had this thing for, you know, 20 years. You know, we've got one at OPT. I don't even know if I've mentioned this on a podcast yet, but um, OPT just turned 75 years old. So we are 75 years old this <laughs> year, um, which um, I know we're the oldest astronomy retailer in the country. We may be the oldest in the world. And so super proud of it. But the, the, um, you know, the coolest thing is that when OPT was started back 1947, there was a telescope that was handmade that was brought into OPT. And, um, this thing is, was made in Oceanside, California. It's still in our shop today. It's still in the OPT headquarters. And, um, like I said, 1947, this is a, a uh, tracking mount and everything motorized. Somebody just an enthusiast made, and it's still there and still works. The optics are still great. Like it's it's awesome that you can have these things and pass them down, and uh, you know, have this this tool for looking at the universe around you, for sharing the universe with the people around you, and uh, have them for so long. So yeah, it really does uh, ring true that you know when you buy these things, you can hang hang on to them for a long time and get a lot of use out of them. Right. So it begs the question, well, out of all these optical tube assemblies, which one would be the best for you? And sadly, yeah. there just is no correct, easy answer to this. You need to make there a lot of choices. Answers, though. Okay. Well, let's talk there. about those. What should one yeah. not do? Uh, you should not, if you're trying to do astrophotography, you should not buy a manual mount. Um, it sounds basic to the people that have done it. It's not basic when you jump into this hobby. I mean, you jump into this hobby, but a lot of people do. I did knowing nothing about this stuff. And why would you, if you haven't been part of, you know, a community or an astronomy club or anything like that. So you just, you look at price and that's generally what drives purchasing decisions. And so people get manual telescopes like Dobsonian's that aren't motorized or even little manual equatorial mounts with the hand crank knobs, that is not going to work. It's not going to work well for you at all. Um, you definitely need something with a, uh, you know, a drive, it's like a, a motor that drives the mount to basically counteract the rotation of the earth so that you can, um, you know, you, you don't get star trails in your images. Um, so you definitely want to buy in at least at that point, but like I said earlier, if you really want to have a simple experience, even GoTo, which I know you have a huge telescope, Tony, that has this. Right. It's a Dobsonian with GoTo and tracking. Right. right. But GoTo is just, um, for anyone that doesn't know, it's just being able to, to punch into a keypad or on your computer, say, like type in Jupiter and the telescope will move to Jupiter and then track it across the sky for you, which makes it very easy to, to take exposures or, you know, any target that way. But it just simplifies the experience and makes it uh, that much more enjoyable. And as far as optical tube assemblies, uh, what should people stay away from? Yeah, I would say long focal length for people that are really just beginning. Um, it's much more challenging. And if you've done any photography at all, you probably know what, I'm, what I mean. But if you compare whatever the widest angle lens you have is to like a telephoto lens, you know that when you, when you use the telephoto lens, 
if you're trying to shoot it handheld without a tripod, um, unless you have just amazing image stabilization at the sensor, you start to see everything in the image really shake and you have to do very short exposures or, you know, your images look blurry because of the shake of your hands. Why? wide angle, you can get away with a little bit more because you can't see it as drastic. It's the, the shake is not as drastic. Um, and so the same thing is true with telescopes. It's just amplified because the focal length range is much greater with telescopes than it is with camera lenses, where camera lenses may range, you know, from on average, it's going to be, you know, something like 18 millimeters up to, um, you know, 200 is pretty standard. You can go past that. You can go to four or 600 and you can go wider than that too. But most of the time people are in that range with telescopes. I mean, they really, they started about 200 millimeters and they go up as far as you want to go. I mean, you know, thousands of millimeters. The one I have out in Landers that I take my pictures with is 3000 millimeters of focal length. That's a huge range. And the further you push the focal length, the more any problems you do have in your system are going to be amplified and you're going to see those atmospheric issues. You're going to see any guiding issues. If the wind blows, you're going to see it a lot more. Um, so I would say starting wide field with something that does not have a lot of focal length, which is generally going to be refractors or very small Newtonians are going to be much, much easier than starting with something um, that, you know, has multiple thousand millimeters of focal length. Uh, it's, it's definitely going to save you time and generally refractors, the easiest, because you don't have to collimate them either, which means like collimation is the process of aligning the mirrors. Mm -hmm. There are multiple mirrors in a refract, uh, reflective system. Um, and you know, those have to be aligned to make sure that the light path comes out where it's supposed to, and in the or orientation that's supposed to, right? So, um, you know, you have to do it do that. You have to manually do that with either like a laser or some kind of tool that you have to, to collimate to make sure that those mirrors are aligned with a refractor with lenses, just the light passing through a series of lenses. You never have to do that. They come collimated. They generally stay collimated and there's no work to be done. So it's just a much simpler process and it's an easier transition for people that have already used refractive elements like camera lenses. It's basically the same thing. It's just more focal length with less lens elements so you can produce a sharper image at infinity right? when focused to infinity. A good way to tell if you're a beginner as to whether this is going to have a long focal length or a short focal length is to just look at the F ratio. The F ratio is the ratio of the diameter to the focal length, and it's just uh, the diameter divided into the focal length, and it's just a number, F2, F3, F4. The lower the number, the, wide of, the wider the field of view you're going to have, which is good for imaging, the higher the number, F7, F8, something like that, going to have a very narrow field of view and a, and a higher magnification level, making it more difficult to use and not as ideally suited for a beginning astrophotography. Right. So that's how you could just tell at a glance. The size that you buy and the style that you buy is going to be a lot decided by what mount you got. So if you've got a star adventurer, you're not going to be buying an eight inch Schmidt Cassegrain, but you are, but you might get away with say a DSLR with a, with a, with a long focal length lens. Uh, you might have a, uh, a small refractor put on there or a, uh, small catadioptic telescope like a Richie Creighton or a uh, uh, Maxutoff uh, design. Those would fit pretty nicely on a Star Adventurer. Uh, but anything bigger, and you get more options, right, uh, for right. what you use. In fact, I, I don't even know. I don't. Maxutoff might be too big. These are like three to five-inch telescopes. Um, might be too big for Star Adventurer. So you might want to think about that a little bit. But uh, that's how you can decide on a relatively decent uh beginner optical tube assembly, it, you're going to mm. want to match it to your mount. Um, and there's a lot of advice out there uh, at OPT, especially on their website about what mounts go. You can kind of see how they fit. If a, if a telescope, <laughs> if a telescope tube looks giant on this little teeny tiny mount, you could probably guess rightly that it's going to be a little bit wobbly. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot to learn more than we can do in a, a very short podcast. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's that's what OPT's for, Call, I mean, OPT's been doing this longer than anyone and uh, does it for the professionals more than anyone. NASA and JPL are literally daily calls, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, so are all the universities around the world. Um, so this is something that, you know, the experts 
very familiar with and, um, you know, talk about it even the highest levels. And it's good to have an expert in your back pocket. And, and that's what we try to be at OPT. But it's, um, and, and before, before I, you know, uh, moved to California to, to be part of OPT, um, I was actually, you know, a customer that was calling at the time. My, uh, my sales tech was Larry, uh, Larry Weatherly. And, uh, he was amazing in getting me started because I made a lot of mistakes. Like I said, I bought a daub to do astrophotography. That was not, it had no tracking motors. It, it had no go-to, it had nothing. It had a ton of flexure, all kinds of issues. And I thought I was doing it right because when I'd gone to, um, forums, everybody was saying that aperture is king, aperture is king, get the biggest telescope you can. That's the best thing you can do for astronomy. And it just wasn't true at all. Um, especially not for imaging. No, not for imaging. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, you know, I ultimately ended up going with his, after making a lot of mistakes, I went with his recommendations and immediately started getting images and was much happier. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, you, you've got to have the, you got to really make sure that you're getting the right equipment because mistakes in astronomy can be expensive and, you know, it's what ends up getting a lot of telescopes just tucked away in a closet and then people don't get out there and really enjoy the best hobby on earth. Just, you know, where else are you going to go that you can explore the entire universe? Every question you ever have, the answers are out there, everything. And I think, you know, it's, there, there is nothing better intellectually or even socially, in my opinion, than getting people talking around this idea and getting people sharing their ideas around it together. And so astronomy does that. And, you know, you got to have the right tools for the job. So definitely, if you have questions, give OPT a call. And um, I know for sure the guys will, um, they'll, they'll steer you the right way. Yeah, they love talking about astronomy there. So give them a reason to do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so let's, okay, let, what about cameras? Uh, let's let's talk about that a little bit. So uh, the mounts need to be solid. The uh, the uh, optical tube assembly, most of them are, are high quality enough that most of what you buy is going to be really good. It, match it to the mount uh, size. What about cameras? Yeah, uh, cameras are, like I said before, if you've already got one, cameras are so good. A DSLR like that yeah. something like that yeah all cameras i mean the camera technology i feel like a lot of these podcasts we've talked about this camera technology in the last 5 years has just exploded and all cameras anymore of just about any brand are unbelievably good you know the big thing that changes between cameras that you're going to go down the street to your local best buy or walmart or whatever and buy a dslr and then um you know, a camera that you'd buy from OPT that's an a, astronomy dedicated camera from ZWO or Attic or or any of these these people that, you know, make the best astronomy cameras in the world. And there are a ton of brands out there that are doing this at, you know, professional levels, um, you know, but just to mention a few, it's like these these cameras have uh, some serious advantages but only if you're going to be doing this as you know a, a hobby that you know you want to participate in and you really want to try to take the best images you possibly can. And some of those advantages are that they're going to have cooling on the sensor and they're going to have control through the computer um, for the entire system. So, so you can set up automation, you can use real astronomy software to run these things and control your images from true raw files, not what DSLRs produce where they're already subtracting a lot of the camera's flaws before you ever see an image. These are true raw files that you calibrate yourself and you have complete control over that camera. And then, like I said, taking out the thermal noise or reducing it drastically by having coolers that you can run these things, you know, 20 degrees under ambient or more is going to give you a huge advantage when it comes to the noise in your images. And, um, you know, just those little details make all the difference when you're looking at trying to take the the best images you possibly can. And after using an astronomy dedicated camera, most people really, they never go back. And and it's, uh, you know, something that's a lot of fun, but it can also be expensive um, getting started. So that's why I tell people, you know, you've got a camera already, just start there, start there and then look at that as something to move up to. 
Yeah, and I would go so far as to say, if you want to get an astronomy-dedicated camera, spend a few hundred dollars. That's all it's going to be on a planetary camera and and try it out. Uh, they're, they're so inexpensive that you can, and they're high quality, really, really good cameras. You can play with them. They're designed, they say, for taking images of planets because they're small. Mm-hmm. They have, you know, generally shorter uh, exposure times, but there's no reason high you can't rates, point that. Yeah. yeah, you can't point that somewhere else and see what you can get out of, say, the Orion Nebula or something brighter. Yeah. Uh, and it gets you experience using a camera dedicated for astronomy, downloading the images dinking around with them after you've got them because that's a whole nother topic. Uh, you know, it, that's, it just gets you that experience and you haven't spent a whole lot of money at it. If you already own a DC, a DSLR, then by all means use it. It's not optimized for the telescope uh, no, realm, it's but it's certainly And it's usable. a color sensor and a lot of people love color and I see phenomenal, uh, phenomenal images taken with them. But monochrome sensors are going to win out every single time just because of the nature of it, right? We, I mean, we've right. talked about this again, and you can go back to our podcast, Color vs. Monochrome. Um, but most of the time, people trying to do science, 100% of the time, are going with monochrome sensors. Right. And then people that want to do, um, you know, push their data as far as they possibly can are getting monochrome sensors and then using color filters um, to get full color images, which sounds wrong. When you first hear it, you're like, oh, that's not going to be accurate. You're just putting a filter over the sensor. That's exactly what's happening with color camera two. It's just already done before you buy it. It's little filters over every pixel. Uh, but it's actually more accurate because you're getting a true representation of where those colors are instead of the camera doing what's called interpolating and guessing at where the, you know, the colors in between the wrong filters would be. So, um, yeah, for the best data possible, people typically end up going with monochrome astro dedicated cameras um, from, you know, the brands that I mentioned and QHY and FLI and and on and on and on. But if you go, like I said, on the website, there's all these different things and a ton of resources there to really help you kind of pick apart which one would be the right way. Um, I wish we had, you know, I wish these podcasts could be, you know, hours and hours and hours long on each topic because there's so much to discuss to make sure that people really uh, go the right direction for what it is they're trying to do. Because this is the type of hobby where, you know, my vision for what a great image is, and then yours, Tony, and then the person that we might be sitting down talking to could be three completely different visions in what we right. need. And if you're trying to take awesome images of Jupiter, and I want the California Nebula, and someone else is just like, the only thing I care about is Andromeda, we're going to need three different systems. Right. Or Jupiter. All I want to take pictures of are Jupiter, right? There's people that do that. You know, they just dedicate themselves to a planet. Yeah, yeah. Or the moon. Or the sun. Yeah. Right? Like, I just want to do solar, right? But um, I think that the best thing to do is really, like I said before, know what you want to do and just start simply. And and you can absolutely get there. And I think people people are always surprised at what they get with very modest systems. You don't have to go out there and buy the craziest thing on Earth just to get started. Yeah, I mean, you so a, rel- a sturdy amount as you can afford, uh, a, a relatively, uh, and match it up with the op- optical tube assembly that it keeps it nice and balanced and 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 sturdy. Uh, a, a camera, either a DSLR or a uh, astronomy dedicated one of which you could spend, a, you know, for a couple hundred up to thousands of dollars on. Um, right. I don't know though. What do you think? I think that if a, if a if you wanted a basic astrophotography system. I don't know. You could probably get one of those for under fifteen hundred, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Including, we, including we've got a kits camera. like that on our site that are already set up with everything that you need, and you don't have to spend a ton of money. You really don't. Um, you know what? What typically ends up happening is the people that do start simply and they see that success. They're the ones that ultimately end up becoming the best imagers because the people that um, that don't end up getting frustrated, and then you know they leave the hobby because they're like, well, I. I couldn't figure it out or um, it was just too much or it was too big and I didn't want to carry it around or, or whatever the the two is going to be, right? But it was too something and then it just leads to frustration or just, you know, not not having the interest in doing it because it's too much work. And so I think the best way to do it is to make sure that you're setting yourself up for success and and learning all the things that you possibly can along the way, like things like back focus that most people don't even know are problems. You got to know how to get your sensor exactly the right distance apart from the rear element of whichever optical system you're using. And those are things that 
Um, you know, beginners generally have us calculate for them so that they don't have to, so that we can build out all the adapters and make sure that when they just click it together, it just works, you know? And as you get more advanced, that's stuff that you learn to do on your own and you can just, you can get any telescope and match it to any camera and know exactly what to do. But starting out, those are things that, why would you know how to do that? Why would you know what you could, <laughs> Really? Where would you, you know? get that from? Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's not part of daily life in any way. All right, folks. Well, I hope this helps you build a basic rig. Go out there, build one, and get started in imaging. Because, man, once you start, I'm going to tell you now, you're not going to look back. <laughs> All right, Dustin. Thanks for that. This is Space Junk Podcast. All right, everybody. It is time for Space News. This is the part of the podcast where I would like to alert you to things that I find interesting that I think you might also find interesting. And I'll start off with the big news of this time of year. Anybody who knows anything about space telescopes knows that the James Webb Space Telescope launched successfully on Christmas Day of 2021, and it is now a fully armed and operational up uh, I better take that back it is a fully deployed space telescope that is now on its way to its final resting orbit at the L2 point beyond the moon it has been launched it has been unfolded completely the optics have been snapped into place and now all that remains is to Focus the focus the telescopes and adjust all of the little tiny mirror not tiny but the mirror segments into such a way that they can produce a nice clear sharp image and that's what's being done right now the sun shield that big thing that sits underneath the James Webb Space Telescope to protect it from the sun and to make the instruments cold that's also fully out extended and tightened so it's it's in place and it's protecting the instruments and things are now cooling down uh and so the next step is for james webb to get to the l2 point which it's almost there now it's over three quarters of the way there it and then to cool the instruments down that's going to take a really long time several months for it to get down to operating temperatures and they're going to move all of those mirror segments into such a position so that they can focus the telescope and then they're going to start calibrating the instruments. All of that is going to take several months and they and astronomers hope that we will see first light, the very first images of space, the James Webb Space Telescope sometime in June or July of 2022. So that happened and that was cool. Also, there has been a discovery of a Jupiter-like planet around another star that was in part discovered by an amateur astronomer. So a citizen science who was looking through NASA telescope data, particularly from the TESS spacecraft, which is the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, he was looking through the data through a citizen science project, which you can get involved in if you're interested. And so an amateur astronomer helped discover a giant gaseous planet that's about 379 light years away from Earth, and it's orbiting a star that is the same mass as our sun. And this was this was done back in uh, February of 2020, where the amateur astronomer in question, <laughs> where the amateur astronomer that was doing this uh, work happened to notice a plot that showed a dimming of uh, brightness in one of the stars that Tess, uh, that Tess looked at. A particular star is called TOI 2180, and the and the planet has been designated TOI 2180b. So the way that planets are found orbiting other stars is by looking for a dip in brightness as a planet that is in orbit around that star moves between our telescope and the star itself. That causes a dim in brightness uh, such that we can measure or detect not only that a planet is moving in front of that star, but how big it is because of, of how much the, the star's brightness dims and how long that brightness dims is due to uh, its orbit around the sun so we can tell how far away it is as well. So those are two pieces of information we can get from a planet around another star. These are called transits and the, the method used is called the transit method and that's what 
test, the T in test stands for. So it's looking at the entire sky as it orbits the Earth in a polar orbit, uh, and it looks at certain squares or, or certain sector, certain sectors of the sky, and it stares at it for about a month. 28 days or so. And then it looks at those brightnesses and sees if any of the, it looks at the brightnesses of all the stars in the field of view, and it sees if any of the stars have dimmed. And if they have dimmed, then it labels it as an object of interest. And then other scientists go and, and uh, with other telescopes to follow up to make sure that there is in fact a planet in orbit around the star. So what happened in this case was an amateur astronomer was using one of the, uh, citizen science projects that's done by NASA. Uh, and you can go to nasa.gov slash citizen science to see all of the different things that they have going on. But he was participating in the one that involves the test mission. And he happened to notice that one of the graphs he was looking at had a dip in brightness that could have been because of a planet passing in front of the star. Now, stars variable and they get, they, the stars are variable and they can get bright and dim for a lot of reasons. But in this case, it could have been a planet in orbit around it. And it seemed to go back to its regular brightness the following day. So the, the uh, amateur astronomer alerted the team. They did some follow-up observations and confirmed, in fact, there was a Jupiter-sized planet in orbit around this sun-sized star. So that's cool. And that's something that I wanted to let you guys know about because as amateur astronomers, if you're just getting started in the hobby of amateur astronomy, this is something you can do without buying any equipment whatsoever. You don't need a telescope. You don't need to do anything. You can just show up at a website, participate in these citizen science project pro programs that are offered by NASA and other places. There's lots of these around. But the NASA ones are cool because it involves space telescopes that are taking data that you can help process. Now, they do have a lot of automated programs that go through this data because there's hundreds of thousands of stars that TESS looks at. But, you know, it misses things. doesn't get them all. And here's a chance for you uh, to help out by finding things that maybe the algorithms missed. In this case, there was a Jupiter-sized planet that was missed, and you get credit for helping to discover your very own planet. So I wanted to let you guys know that. The name of the website is science.nasa.gov slash citizen science. And there you'll see all of the things that NASA has going that you can help participate in. So please go visit that website. You'll be glad you did. I spend more time than I want to admit looking at some of this stuff myself. So get involved, become a scientist and help astronomers learn more about our universe. Well, that is it for this episode, space fans. Please let us know what you think of this new format. You can email us with ideas, questions, comments at spacejunkpodcast at deepastronomy.com. On behalf of Dustin Gibson, I'm Tony Darnell. Thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up.